So Better Place picks up nearly a billion dollars in venture funding, becomes one of the biggest startups of all time, but puts less than 2,000 cars on the road. And you were one of those owners, Brian. I was indeed one of the 1,000 owners in Israel, not even 2,000, 1,000. Damn, it was as low as 1,000. Actually, there are hundreds of cars still on the road, people who refused to take Renault's offer. Uh, and again, we'll, well, I'll tell you about it, what happened later on, but refused to take the offer, and the cars are still out there. Coming up, we talk with Brian Blum, author of Totaled, a book about the rise and fall of the EV mega startup Better Place. First, though, a quick word about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Mission Solar is a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. It operates a 200-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules offer long-term reliability exceeding international standards by three times. Mission's high-performance solar panels have the highest PTC ratings than any North American manufacturer in the market. To find out more, go to Mission Solar dot com slash products from green tech media this is the energy gang debates and discussions on energy clean tech and the environment i'm stephen lacy welcome The electric vehicle revolution requires the bravery of Churchill, the vision of JFK, and the determination of Reagan. That's how former Better Place CEO Shia Gossi once described the idea for his electric vehicle company in a dramatic white paper. Pretty bold, right? Well, that's a Gossi for you. In a short period of time, that brazenness took Better Place from an idea in a white paper to one of the highest capitalized startups in history, and just as quickly back down to virtually nothing. This week, we'll get the story behind the spectacular rise and fall of Better Place. Then later in the show, what does Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick mean for environmental and energy law? We'll look at the record of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. I'm here with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, my co-hosts. Catherine's the chair of 38 North Solutions in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Hi, nice to be here. How are you? Great. And I got to go to a dinner where Dusty Baker, the former manager of the Nats, uh, was speaking because he started his own energy company. And I almost wept because the Nats are doing so badly. <laughs> Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. I think he's in the Washington, D.C. region this week. Where are you at? Yeah, I took the pink eye flight back from San Francisco yesterday. So I'm, uh, I'm back in Washington, D.C. You shedding any tears like Catherine? Oh, no. I, uh, I've never been much of a baseball fan, I have to say. Uh, I, I think that some of our listeners are not either, because some of them tend to get a little grumpy when we talk too much about baseball. <laughs> oh, get over it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about electric cars. Joining us this week from Israel is writer Brian Blum, author of a recent book on Better Place. It is called Totaled, the billion-dollar crash of the startup that took on big auto, big oil, and the world. Brian, thanks for joining us. I loved the book. Thank, thank you so much, Stephen. So um, refresh us from its bold inception to its peak. What was Better Place? So Better Place was probably the most audacious startup that Israel has ever seen, and it was poised to be one of the most successful, at least at the time, that's what we thought, electric car startups in the world. Now, we're going back to 2007, okay? So we're going back a whole 
decade, more than a decade now. And uh, an entrepreneur named Shai Agassi, who had uh, had made a lot of money selling a, a software company called Top Tier to SAP, the German software company. And uh, he was he had this idea to create an electric car infrastructure network. Okay, so not actually an electric car company, but an electric car infrastructure network that would allow drivers of electric cars to go anywhere without worrying about uh, without worrying about range anxiety, and to do this using the technology that existed in 2007. And that's critical to the whole story because we're not talking about today when electric cars can go, you know, two, three, four hundred miles when, you know, Tesla has, you know, amazing batteries underneath the car. We're talking about 2007 when, you know, what did we have? The Nissan Leaf, which would get, you know, 70 miles at most. And, and that really wasn't enough to let anybody feel comfortable driving freely all over, you know, the, uh, all over city, all over state, all over country. So Better Place had an idea. And Chayagasi had this idea, which was, let's not refill the, the batteries with electricity. When you run out, we'll just swap the batteries. You'll pull into a station that looks kind of like a gas station or a car wash. Your car would go up on a platform. It would be raised in the air. A robot would come in and automatically take out the battery that had just you know gone 70 miles, put in a brand new recharged fresh battery, and in five minutes you would be off and running and you could you know continue your journey. And in fact, it worked. By the time the company launched, which was in 2012 to the to the public and started selling cars, um, and and we were you know my family and I bought one of these cars, we could drive anywhere in the entire country of Israel, and we did. So Agassi himself is an interesting character. You mentioned in the book that he once uh, played a lot of poker, too. And so he knew how to play a hand. He knew how to bluff. He knew how to tell a story. (laughs) So uh, how did he sell this story of Better Place to investors and eventually to the public? Because uh, he was a software guy, and he all of a sudden wanted to build an infrastructure company and a hardware company. So he was a really a master salesperson. He still is. I mean, he's, he's still out there giving you know inspirational talks on innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, and and he simply told an amazing story uh, of how this would get the world off of oil, how it would save the environment, how it would change the geopolitical, you know, infrastructure, you know, and and the balance of power, which was especially important here in Israel, where where we are close to some, you know, dangerous regimes who make a lot of money on selling oil. And and the message really resonated. It it wasn't so much that he knew you know the tech, the, the hardware technology, but he knew how to tell a great story. And the first person he really told it to who got on board was a billionaire named Idan Ofer. And uh, Idan Ofer was at the time, this is back in 2007, was Israel's richest man. He was worth over $4 billion at that point. He eventually got as high as $6.5 billion. Uh, and, and he met with Agassi and the two of them you know, met for all of about 45 minutes. Agassi gave him his pitch and at the end of the trip, uh, this is, you know, they're in meeting in uh, Idanofer's penthouse uh, office overlooking this busy highway in the center of Tel Aviv. And they go down the elevator at the end of the trip. And this is like amazing. At the end of the elevator ride, Idanofer puts his hand on Chayagasi's shoulder and says, I'm in for $100 million. And the elevator doors open. And there you have it the most classic elevator pitch in the history of elevator pitches. 
And so they pulled in this money. And at that time in 2007, uh, Better Place was called the fifth largest startup in history, I believe. Yeah, that's what so. that's what Wired Magazine called them in terms of the amount of money. They didn't just raise $100 million. Eventually, Idan Ofer came in for 130 and then another, uh, another uh, group of angels and other smaller investors came in for another $70 million. So the, the first round was $200 million. And that was followed by another round of $250 million. And then another round of $200 million and, and another amount of $100 million. And before you knew it, before it was done, the company had raised $850 million, which is, I, I rounded up a little bit and I called it the billion dollar crash of the startup that took on big auto, big oil and the world. Well, and he did a lot better than that in the sense that I think Vantage Point came into the first round, which is a you know pretty sophisticated venture capital firm. And so the one thing I would I would just say is that, I mean, I've known Shai in the past and he really is a masterful salesman, but I think what he was selling was also something that people wanted to buy. If you remember in 2007, oil prices were accelerating and they, you know, hit their peak at $147 a barrel. Um, and so there were a lot of people talking about oil replacement, the end of oil and electrification of transportation. Right. So, so it's a great question, Jigger. The part of the sales pitch, part of Shayagasi's sales pitch for Better Place was that this car that uh, that Better Place would be selling, and again, it wasn't the wasn't a manufactured by Better Place. They partnered with Renault, the French automaker, to make a uh, an electric version of the Fluence. It was called the Fluence ZE. ZE stood for zero emissions. And the real key selling point was this would be an inexpensive car that anybody could buy. It would be not not you know at the the price that Tesla was coming out at, at that point you know at a hundred thousand dollars and more. This would be a car that would be, and, and Shai Gatsi said this many times on stage, in public, perhaps even free, certainly inexpensive, but maybe even free. Now, how did he get to that? Because the price of oil was so high, as, as you said, that if you, if you factored in uh, the cost of leasing the car and then Better Place's fairly unique business model, which is that you would pay a monthly subscription for your electricity. Basically, you were paying for your miles the way that, that people pay for, say, a, a cell phone subscription. So you would pay for your miles. And by paying for the miles, that would cover the lease and the car. And therefore, you would be getting the car for free in exchange for your monthly subscription fee of, say, $300 a month. And that was enticing. You know, here we are paying in Europe, you know, five, six, seven, eight dollars, you know, a gallon or, you know, and and he's talking about a free car. At one point, he even, you know, said to, you know, uh, an auto manufacturer, you know, based on the fact that I'm going to be selling these cars for free, you better take all your cars just off off your books because you're not going to sell anything. Yeah. So when he started out, Brian, in the 2008 timeline and came, I was running Gridwise Alliance at that point, which is a smart grid organization. And they came to us and described what they were doing. And this notion that, you know, Dong was talking about virtual power plants, which are now happening, um, this whole concept of smart grid and making sure that you could manage EVs um, so that it would actually make Make the system better. That was all very intriguing. But one of the things I just could not get my head around was this battery swapping con- concept, because it just seemed so capital intensive. So talk a little bit about how that, you know, how he could not get off of that idea. I mean, that that was such a key piece of what he was trying to sell. 
In 2012, uh, when the car was just being launched, Shai took off on a road trip around Israel. The, uh, the switching stations were not all open, but many of them were. And he started at his home near Tel Aviv, and he drove north to Haifa, and then he drove a little bit east towards the Golan Heights, very close to to where Syria is, you know, and, and where all the, the action is going on right now. And then he drove south all the way past Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, to Eilat, and then he drove back north. And he did this entire trip, which was over a thousand kilometers, in the course of one day, switching batteries all the way. And he tweeted the entire way, taking pictures up and down the, the country. And it was an exciting moment because it demonstrated that this vision of this capital-intensive switching network, that it worked. And uh, and there was no other way for him to do this crazy this crazy trip of a thousand kilometers in a day other than switching batteries. You know, he could never have plugged in, even if he had a fast charge and the, the Renault Fluences were not fast charge capable. So they took six to seven hours to fill up from zero to, you know, whatever it is they were going to fill. You know, by the time we launched, they got about 120 to 140 kilometers to the to, to the charge. But you, you, you even if it was 45 minutes to an hour to fill up, if you had to swap seven, eight times over the course of this thousand kilometer trip, it wouldn't have happened. So, uh, you know, he he loved the idea because it made sense, especially he made sense in what we call island countries. Okay, what's an island country? That's a country where you can't really drive far, you know, out of the boundaries of the country. So an island like, you know, Denmark was, was, a, was a good, I mean, Denmark is connected to Germany, but, you know, you, you have a lot of water around Denmark. Israel is an island because you're surrounded by the Mediterranean on one side. Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, none of which have open borders. So you have an enclosed space. You can put the switch stations in and you can get anywhere. He loved the idea. And the truth is, I love the idea too, because I could go anywhere. It it, it made sense, even though, as you're, you're about to ask the next question, is how much did these stations cost and and how much capital did it, did it burn up? And the answer is a lot. A good story doesn't create a good business necessarily. And so the the swapping stations cost many millions of dollars, I think $3 million, and they had assumed that they were going to cost maybe a half a million dollars. Uh, it was very difficult to secure partnerships with automakers. Uh, Agassi would go into meetings feeling like they should be scrambling to to be working with Better Place, and they were turned off by his pugnacious approach. Uh you know, th there were things down to the smallest screws in the swapping stations that were way more expensive than they thought. The design, the engineering, the fixes to the swapping stations, basically all the real stuff that has to happen as a company kind of took better place by surprise. So talk through the complexity of the challenges as they started building out these stations and looking to automaker partners. So you're right. The stations were originally forecast to cost five hundred thousand dollars a station, and they wound up costing, you know, three million dollars, not including the batteries that had to be in the station. Each station had to have, you know, say five to ten batteries stored there, so that when you know a lot of cars came in, you know, they would always have a charged up battery. Um, so, and those batteries cost another, you know, fifteen thousand dollars or so. There, there were some. There were some manipulations on that. Uh, Renault actually put put in some of that money, so they wound up costing around seven thousand dollars each. But again, you're multiplying, you know, the number of stations by the number of batteries, and and 
and the reason the stations cost so much, you know, wasn't wasn't just the the building of the stations. After that, there was the the support of the stations. They 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 required an enormous amount of electricity because one of the things that made Better Place's battery charging system work was that the batteries were always kept at a very, very cold temperature. Um, I mean, it was freezing. I went in those stations a couple of times. They were freezing in those stations. Um, but that allowed the battery to be recharged over and over without degrading the way that it did when you charged it at home. And I can tell you, these, these the batteries... You know, I had my car for four and a half years before, you know, we get to the end of the story, which we haven't gotten to yet, but there is an end. There's a reason why the book is called The Billion Dollar Crash. And uh, and after four and a half years, my battery, which got 140 kilometers to the charge when I got it, was down to about 70. So it, it had dropped 50% in, in four and a half years. And part of that was because, you know, just plugging in and charging it without cooling it and you know in a, in one of the stations so all of that cost you know, a ton of money then there were problems with with bureaucracy that that people didn't foresee Agassi didn't foresee his staff didn't foresee so for example the most logical place to put a battery switching station would be uh, you know next to a, a gas station on a major highway it's 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 convenient it's good branding but it turns out that the the gas stations in Israel mostly have built extensions illegally. So you know they get a certain amount of of of, of acreage, and then they want to add you know a car wash or they want to add more of a convenience store. So they don't ask; they just build. And so when Better Place came along and said we want to co-locate one of our switching stations along with you know your gas station. The gas station people said, well, no, no, no. Then we'll have to go back to the government and then we'll have to reveal the illegal building we did. And so nobody, nobody except for like one station agreed. So there were no stations co-located in Israel. There were no stations on the major highways. And this led to an insane kind of situation where in order to recharge your battery, to switch your battery, you would sometimes have to drive, you know, 10 12 minutes off of the highway to get to the switching station, switch the battery. That's another five minutes, drive 10 minutes back. So you just added 20 to 25 minutes to your commute. And that's if you just have to switch once. So, so that's the kind of thing that, that they didn't foresee that added complexity and cost. The other thing that you said in your book is that Israel Electric Corporation wouldn't give them permission to install charging spots on the streets. Right. So so one of the things that I didn't mention yet in the story is that Better Place was not just about switching stations. I mean, of course, you could charge in your home, you know, and then you could charge in your office if you had a, a charging spot in your office. And the idea, of course, was that most people would charge at home and charge at the office and you wouldn't use the switching station more than a few times a year. And that was true even, even for us. That was mostly the way we charge. But in Israel, the only organization that is allowed to install the charging spots is the Israel Electric Corporation, and they drag their feet also. So we got our car, we got our charging spot, but we couldn't get it connected to the proper connections for several months because the Israel Electric Corporation either was dragging their feet or they 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 were too busy or they didn't care. Um, we, we got it working. There was a workaround. We, we charged it to the, the, the condominium committee, you know, and then we had to pay them back every month. Uh, but lawyers had to get involved, which cost more money to, to, to give assurances to the condominium committee that, that we would pay our bills every month. And, you know, and, and as a result, 
the, the Israel Electric Corporation was a real bottleneck. If you wanted to install something on the street, only they could do it and they wouldn't do it because, you know, it was, you know, not worth it to them. I had this sort of weird Forrest Gump-like uh, relationship with with Better Place because um, Vantage Point was aggressively trying to fund Sun Edison at the time that they launched their investment in Better Place. So I met Shai at the time in 07 and then Separately, Edan Offer was one of our largest donors to the Carbon War Room um, when I was running the nonprofit. So I met with Edan several times about this as well. Um, the, the thing that I always found so fascinating was, and you described this beautifully in your book, Brian, it's like just how awful these people were as entrepreneurs. I mean, the thing that I just want to make sure that people understand is that these things are entirely avoid, avoidable through due diligence. Like they're not... It's not a foregone conclusion that people have to make these ridiculous mistakes, right? And this is also true for like applied materials, right? When they came out with their amorphous silicon, like manufacturing, all of us in the solar industry knew that it was the dumbest idea ever. But like people are like, well, there's a silicon shortage and it'll last forever. We should do this, right? I just, I want to make sure that it's clear that like, as we try to change the world, and the infrastructure that powers us because we want to decarbonize the world, there are good ideas and bad ideas. And this was a really bad idea. Yeah, and I think beyond that, there was this sense of if you build it, they will come, which may work for ghosts of baseball players in Iowa cornfields. But in this situation, <laughs> they needed, he needed, as you're talking through this hardware issue and OEMs, he needed a really strong manufacturing partner. And certainly you can talk through how how that happened with Renault. But when he tried to get into the US and get a big stimulus funding grant in 2009, he had no US car manufacturing partner because he had managed to just tick everybody off in the way he operated. So maybe you could talk about how he worked or didn't work very well with partners, because I feel like that was also a big downfall because he had the software brain, but not the hardware, but he couldn't build strong enough partnerships to make that happen. Okay, so so there's there's two things I wanted to talk about here. I'm I'm going to tell a story first that that goes to what Jigger was talking more about, and then I'm going to come back to you, Catherine. Is that okay? Yes, of course. Um, the story I wanted just to tell is how how people got taken in, and I I I, I don't want to say get taken in because that implies there's a uh, there's some fraud or some some malfeasance, and that's not the case at all. Um, but how do how do you overlook you know, doing your due diligence on something like this. And I just want to tell a personal story and then I'll come back to, to, to the second part. So my family and I were not looking to buy an electric car back in 2012 when we, when we bought the car. In fact, it was, it was a summer afternoon. It was in August and we were looking for something to do with our, with our, our children that day. They were off from school and we'd, we'd done everything. We'd gone to the movies. We'd gone to the beach. We'd gone, you know, to the ice skating. We, you know, we, we, we sort of were out of ideas of what to do. And we thought, you know what? Better Place has built this amazing this amazing uh, demonstration center, this visitor center out near Tel Aviv. And they're offering, you know, free rides in an electric car. And I'd never been in an electric car at that point. And I thought that, that'd be fun. So we packed the kids in our old 1995 Toyota Corolla, the car that we bought when we immigrated to Israel back in 1995. We came from California, been in Jerusalem ever since. We drove out to Tel Aviv. We, we, we got to see this amazing movie. It's like they have this 25-minute movie with, you know, with holograms and, you know, 
melting ice caps and polar bears and you know big big booms and, and music that sounds like John Williams wrote it for Star Wars. And then we then we did the the test drives and we drove around the track, each one of us, all the adults in the in the family. And at the end of that trip, and the end of that test drive, we were completely in love with that car. Now I realize that many people get excited by an electric car, uh, and maybe that's normal, you know, for any electric car. But but the salesman was so persuasive that within two weeks, we had put down our down payment. Uh, and we had never intended to buy an electric car at all. We were completely sold. And when the company went out of business, I thought to myself, "What happened here? You know, I'm I'm a business and technology journalist. That's you know, due diligence. You know, research. That is what I do for a living. And when it came to buying this car, I did not do my due diligence. I just you know put everything aside and and got taken in by the hype and the excitement and bought the car. And I, I'm going to suggest that the same thing happened to you know even very savvy VCs like you know like Alan Salzman of of, of Vantage Point and Idan Ofer and you know Morgan Stanley and HSBC. I mean, over the course of that 850 million dollars, people put aside their rational thinking and kept putting more money into it because the story was just irresistible, just like it was to me personally. That's that's the only way I can really sort of explain it because you know it, it, if you look back at it and you say how did they spend so much money and did, where was the due diligence yeah that makes sense but when you're in the middle of it you just do it and so to the point about Agassi's style and failing to secure key partnerships that eventually led to problems in the US when they couldn't secure a loan guarantee from the government so Shai Agassi had, you know, two sides to him. There was really this incredible salesperson side, and then there was this, you know, you know, we would call it nicely chutzpah, you know, in, in Hebrew and Israel, you know, you know, really, you know, just being completely convinced that his story and his, you know, his message was the right one and the only one. So when he went to, for example, to General Motors in 2008 and tried to to convince General Motors to make a battery swappable version of the Chevy Volt. And the GM people said, no, no, we're not doing that. We've already got, you know, our, our version of the of the vehicle and we're along the way. And but you know, we would be interested if Better Place would like to be the infrastructure provider for the electricity here in the United States. And then we'll see what we'll see what happens. And and Shai said, no, that's that's a dumb idea. We don't work with cars that have a tailpipe. Period. And and so they they walked out of the meeting and there was no deal to be had. And afterwards, Shai turned to one of the the investors who had come with him and said, you know what? The next time we meet with with General Motors, it'll be in our offices. And you know why? Because we will have the bigger market cap. We will be worth more than General Motors. And he wasn't entirely wrong because General Motors obviously came into a lot of troubles and better place, you know, was on its way to a $2.3 billion valuation. But that kind of attitude turned a lot of people off. He turned off, you know, manufacturers in Germany and he turned off, you know, everyone in the US just by by acting as if, you know, better place was going to take over and nobody else could possibly compete. And then when it came time to get other manufacturers, nobody was interested. Only Renault signed on. And why did Renault sign on? Because Renault, unlike, you know, many of the other, you know, manufacturers at that time, did not have any plans to make hybrid cars. 
In fact, Carlos Ghosn, the, the CEO and chairman of, of, of Renault, had a very funny quip that he that he made, and Shai Agassi repeated it in his TED Talk, which was uh, seen by a million people. It was a very popular TED Talk. And he said, you know, hybrids, I don't like hybrids. Hybrids are like mermaids. You know, when you want a fish, you get a woman. And when you want a woman, you get a fish. But you never get what you want. <laughs> So Renault signed on board because they didn't have a strategy for hybrids. So they went full on into electric cars, but everybody else was waiting for Renault and to see how it worked. And maybe, you know what, if there was more money and if Better Place hadn't spent so much uh, and the company hadn't gone out of business, maybe uh, you know other manufacturers would have come on board. No, and no, maybe they, if it wasn't Sydney. Could- but they would have never come on board. I mean, this is the thing that people don't understand. Even today- no one has used Tesla's um, charging infrastructure protocol, right? Like everyone has a different plug. Car companies don't work together. And the reason they don't work together is because they believe that they're the smartest people in their industry. Every one of them believes that they're in the hardware business. They don't want to all make the same thing. They don't want to follow a standard. They love being different from everyone else, right? So the fact that everyone would have adopted the same battery swapping technology was ludicrous. And for him to think otherwise was equally ludicrous. That may be true, Jigger, but there's a bigger point here, and that is better place probably could have weathered a lot of those storms. Even if it hadn't secured some partnerships with bigger automakers, it probably would still be in existence today if it hadn't set itself up to spend a million dollars a day. If um, it had reeled no, back... No, but it, that's... Well, but this I, is what I'm saying to you. The only reason people cared about Better Place was because they spent a million dollars a day. If they were stealth and didn't do all the flashy, crappy stuff that Shy did, no one would bother with them. The only reason reason he got invited to all these things and went to all these things and GE talked to him was because he's getting so much ink. It's what Elon recognized, right? If Elon said, no, I'm just going to focus on making a profitable company, no one would bother with Tesla. What do you think about that, Brian? How much of this is the reality distortion field? Looking back on it, it, it seems like this is an accurate way of, of describing it, that the money really made a lot of, you know, the hype. And in fact, when the company was was in trouble, you know, and, and on its way towards bankruptcy, one of the, the sort of, you know, armchair responses was, you know, why didn't they start smaller? Why didn't they raise, you know, maximum $200 million total, build a demonstration of the system, you know, between, you know, Tel Aviv and, and Herzliya, which is a northern suburb of Tel Aviv. That's assuming that that it made sense to do it in Tel Aviv and, and, and in Israel. Um, but, you know, just demonstrate that the, that the product was viable and that it worked. And and the, the counter argument was, well, if you did that, and if you didn't raise, you know, a billion dollars, you know, then Renault wouldn't have signed on, then you wouldn't have built, you know, any of the switching stations, you wouldn't have had the hype. So, so I think, you know, I think it does make sense, but I, I'm always loath to look back and say the the amount of money that was being raised at the time was a mistake because that's what we see, you know, after the bankruptcy. At the time, it looked like that was the way to build, you know, a, a you know, at one point he said it'll be the first trillion dollar company, you know, and that was that was the way to do it. So, you know, I'm going to bring this all back to public policy because I see so many companies that have a great idea and then they do not think about 
where is the best market based on the public policy in place? So it wasn't just that they were looking at Israel or that they were trying to figure out how to get money from the U.S. to to do something on Highway 5 and put a bunch of switching stations there. They also had big operations in Australia, in China, which honestly, China seemed like a great market because of their air pollution issues and their goals of 5 million EVs by 2020. Japan, um, they were everywhere. Denmark, they it seemed that they were looking at so many different markets thinking, this is such a great idea. Everybody's going to want to do it. And yet they didn't kind of look forward and say, what are the policies there and how do we either navigate those or create them that will actually enable us to have a real market in one place? They were just so diffuse and didn't seem to consider policy at all. Yeah. And you had this dual problem. So they were widely dispersed and they didn't have this clear public policy push. And then in the U.S., they came in, as you detailed, Brian, and they thought that if they just hit Capitol Hill, had a bunch of meetings with lawmakers, that people would see their way, just like Agassi thought that it would happen in investor meetings and in meetings with automakers. And they found out that uh, lawmakers are not necessarily rational people. And they don't, even if they buy the story, they, they're not even that educated about electric cars, or at least they weren't at that time. And so they ran into all these problems that they didn't foresee, thinking that they were just going to somehow convince a bunch of lawmakers of their vision. You're right. The the Better Place's attempt to capture Capitol Hill didn't succeed. I mean, they got as far, you know, as a few meetings in in Congress. They had meetings, you know, you know, a couple in in the White House itself. But not having an automaker in the U.S., you know, just stopped every conversation. Uh, which, but it didn't stop. By the way, conversations in New York and in California. To, to build demonstration networks and to build electric taxi networks, which interestingly um, may have been the future of this particular technology, the battery switch technology, um, because you know there was an idea to do that first in California or actually first in New York and then California, but it actually was implemented in Japan, in Tokyo, where they put together a, a demonstration of uh, four electric swappable battery taxis that ran for a few months and were were successful they had one switching station and the, and the drivers were able to use it they ran another another one in Amsterdam going from Schiphol airport to the city of Amsterdam uh, and in fact after the company went out of business one of the first things that Shai tried to do was open a new company that would have focused on electric switchable battery taxis in London uh, but he didn't he didn't do it or his intention because the company never really took off. It, it had a website and it was open for about a year, but it didn't really raise any money and it never built anything. But the idea was it would partner with the government to make this happen as opposed to being a private concern and raising VC money. So so there seems to be you know a movement away from the grandiose vision towards something that might have been more manageable, swappable battery taxis, government partnership, more limited area. But, it, you know, it didn't happen. So we, we don't know. Wait, guys, I figured it out. It wasn't spending too much money. It wasn't Agassi's approach to this. It was because they didn't hire Catherine's firm to push for them on Capitol Hill. <laughs> oh, I don't think that would have worked. <laughs> I mean, they came to me when I was at Gridwise Alliance and I was like, I don't know. Well, you know look, I, 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 for me, the thing is, is I just want to make sure that folks realize that this happens all the time. This is exactly what happened to Solazyme, Amaris, Jivo, and all of the biofuels folks. They they announced big, flashy, you know, 
contracts with the Air Force and other people and didn't really realize what was working and what wasn't working. I think that I just hope that the lesson here is that this stuff is really hard and papering it over with hype never works. Yeah. So that brings us to the final question, I suppose, which is what should entrepreneurs learn about this experience? We have a ton of people who listen to this podcast because they are starting businesses. They they run businesses. They want to eventually build a business in clean tech of some sort. They they I think generally a lot of the folks who are listening want to change the industry in some way um, for economic or environmental reasons. And so we're having this conversation because there are a lot of very clear lessons as we've discussed. So if you want to get more of the salacious detail, read the book because there's a ton in there. And I think you will get a much better picture of who was running Better Place and why this company existed and why it ultimately failed. But to this, this the end of your book, which I think is, is quite good, I'm glad you brought this all together. You actually have seven lessons that you wrote about um, that startups need to think about when they're when they're considering the experience of Better Place. So we don't have to go through all seven, but I'm just wondering if there are some general principles that you think entrepreneurs should live by when considering the failure of this company. Yeah, I've, I've got the book in front of me, all 350 pages. I'm on page 270. So if you want to buy it on Amazon, that's where you can skip to to get to the lessons. But um, I think there's actually one real lesson uh, that's sort of encapsulated in all of the seven that are at the end of the book. And that is everything changes You know, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're in business of any size. What, what you start off with, you know, the business plan and what you've written down on day one is not what you're going to have, you know, on you know year five. And that being able to to change and to iterate and to update the plan is really what is is going to make your company a success. And Better Place really didn't do that. They were focused on the battery switch station model. They were focused on this cell phone subscription monthly plan model. Uh, they turned down General Motors when when there was an offer to be an infrastructure provider. There were all kinds of other things that wound up being turned down. Uh, you know, when the when the switch stations turn out to be three million dollars instead of five hundred thousand um, dollars, nobody said, "Well, maybe we should conserve money and only build twenty instead of forty two. Uh, and you know, and when staffing was was up to a you know a, a burn rate of a million dollars a day. Nobody said, maybe we have too many people and we're going to run out of money before the Series C is done. Uh, that kind of being nimble and able to change, it's not a lesson just for clean tech or startups in the EV space. It's for all startups. And Better Place is kind of the poster child for a company that stuck with the original model and would not change. So if you had a chance to get another uh, Renault Better Place car, would you do it? No, I would not. Uh, I would do it. If there was a battery that could either get me a thousand kilometers or if the technology had improved so that I could recharge my car in five minutes or less. But, uh, but switching batteries, I think, has been proven by Better Place and also you know, in other parts of the world, unless you're talking about a scooter. You know, somewhere in in Taiwan or in Mumbai, uh, that can switch out the, a small battery from a vending machine. I think big batteries, you know, consumers switching them out in expensive in infrastructure, that's not going to happen. We're not going to see that again. Uh, so that's kind of that's kind of gone. And you know, the other technology doesn't exist yet. But give me a five minute recharge by plugging it in, 
and I will be the first one in line to buy a new car. Brian Blum, folks, he's got the personal experience and the journalistic experience. His book is Totaled, The Billion Dollar Crash of the Startup That Took on Big Auto, Big Oil in the World. You can find it on Amazon or anywhere you get your books. Um, I really love this book. I had paid attention to Better Place, but hadn't actually reported on the company much as it went through this um, crazy rise and fall. And I just, I really did learn an extraordinary amount. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. Thank you all of you for, for asking great questions today. A quick break here, folks, to welcome back Mission Solar to the Energy Gang as our supporter, our sponsor. You know, we're talking a lot about supporting the domestic solar industry here in America, and Mission Solar has been operating in America, producing high-quality solar panels for a long time. The company's 200-megawatt solar manufacturing facility supports local U.S. manufacturing, engineering, and office jobs in San Antonio, Texas. It is directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. And better yet, it is a really good source for developers because it's centrally located in the United States, and it makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers and installers. So your projects are moving and on schedule. And the best-in-class research and development laboratory run by Mission keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. So the company is actually releasing soon, at the end of this year, a new high-power product, and you can find out more about its best-in-class product line at missionsolar.com slash products. That's missionsolar.com slash products. Next up, the law of the land in America is shifting further to the right. Let's talk now about Judge Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's choice to take retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy's seat on the Supreme Court. If you watched his Monday press conference, you know a lot about his personal and professional background. He was a choir boy. He coaches his daughters in basketball. He worked in the White House under George W. Bush. But what about his legal background? Lawmakers responsible for approving Kavanaugh's nomination are pouring through his hundreds of decisions while on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the last 12 years, including a handful of big ones on climate and environmental rules. His record of decisions is mixed on that front, but they trend towards strong skepticism about the way EPA crafts rules on climate and air pollution. So is America's highest court about to get more hostile to environmental regulations? Let's see if we can unpack this. Catherine, what should we know about Judge Kavanaugh? Well, the first thing to know is that both the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation put him on a list. He is fully vetted. There will be no surprises from their standpoint. And that those are conservative and libertarian anti-government groups. So those are groups that they don't want any surprises like Justice Souter. They don't want anybody that is going to maybe go in a different direction than they have fully vetted. So the range of opinions, I think, won't be huge. And the difference is on a whole host of issues for which they vet. Well, just to stop you there, Catherine, it's hard to know exactly how a justice is going to evolve over time because you have three justices like Roberts and Souter and Kennedy who have all evolved considerably from or they have at least come up with many surprise decisions that weren't didn't follow the conservative playbook. Right. So you're right that some justices evolved because of political social situations that also evolve over time. So justices are not immune from what's going on in the real world. And that often will dictate what they end up doing. We kind of just don't know how that will evolve. But some of the key things that um, 
that Justice Kavanaugh has said, and you and you're right, there are 286 cases on which he has writing, so there's a lot out there, is that he does believe that text matters. The text of the law is the law. And what that means is that if you look at how he could potentially rule on EPA, for example, during Massachusetts and EPA in 2007, that the the Clean Air Act that was last updated in 1990 did not contemplate uh, CO2 as a greenhouse gas and as a pollutant because it, there was a lack of awareness about it. And so when the agency decided to act and the Supreme Court made the decision, they said, okay, based on what the Clean Air Act does and the law of the land, the agency can reasonably contemplate expanding it to include carbon and other greenhouse gases, just because the underlying statute gives them that ability to do that. Now, there are other people who say, wait a minute, if it's not in the text of the law and the Clean Air Act has not been updated, then they can't do that. They can't overstep their bounds. And I would say, based on his previous decisions, that Kavanaugh leans on not giving agencies as much discretion, instead looks to the text of the law. So I would imagine that he would lean toward, no, EPA would be overstepping stepping its bounds by not adhering directly to the law. And Congress would have to do something in order for EPA to be able to find greenhouse gases and a pollutant. Right. And so that's very important because the Obama era EPA regulations for carbon emissions were based on the Clean Air Act and this interpretation of the law and the Supreme Court interpretation. So if you have a change in that interpretation, a more literal change, then we could see a shifting of the framework of the regulations that we've all been talking about for the last six or eight years. Yeah. And just to take it back to the legal piece, um, I reached out to Ari Pesco, of course, because he's our FERC Mensa on Twitter, and just ask him what he thought about Kavanaugh, and not just from the environmental standpoint, but especially from FERC, because so much of what I work on has to do with markets. And there was a decision last year, NRG versus FERC, where there Kavanaugh wrote the opinion, the majority opinion, and um, he did talk a lot about capacity markets and the auctions. And one of the things that sort of follows this expansion, resisting expansion of administrative agency holds true for FERC too. So one of the things he does not believe is that FERC can just make modifications to a regional transmission operator or an independent system operator's proposals that that then become rates of FERC's making. So he does not believe that FERC should be creative creating rates. And in this opinion, this NRG versus FERC, he basically said, you know, if, if there are resources that fall out of the market, out of the capacity market, if they are low, they're below cost bidding in the capacity auctions, that it could lead to brownouts or blackouts during periods of peak demand, which is a huge leap because I don't think PJM has ever said that, um, that there would be brownouts or blackouts. And yet that is the argument that the White House is now making to try to prop up uneconomic coal and nuclear plants. So it's interesting. I think that this could... If this case, if this issue of resilience gets to the Supreme Court and Kavanaugh is sitting there, he's going to bring that thinking, um, I think, on cases with distributed energy resources or storage, it will really depend on how they see FERC's jurisdiction if it gets to the Supreme Court. Now, remember, that means there would have to be a, a case taken to the circuit court, that then it would have to be taken to the Supreme Court by someone, and who knows what the new solicitor general would do and if he would defend FERC or choose not to defend FERC. Um, 
So there, I think, and Ari and I agree that the decision on Order 745, which was the demand response decision, EPSA versus FERC, which uh, was in 2016, that was a 6-2 decision. That was a pretty strong decision. And that is seems to be pretty strong precedent for resources like demand response and hopefully distributed energy resources and storage to be able to participate in the wholesale markets. So, you know, I, I, I realize this is a, a little bit convoluted, but I think there are sort of two pieces. One is what do we already have that has been that you would consider settled versus how could Kavanaugh potentially interpret something as agency overreach? Yeah, it's it's worth working through the complexity because we are probably going to see cases moved to the Supreme Court that deal with these issues. And so when we see a generational shift like this on the Supreme Court, you are talking about a pretty fundamental change in the framework for how we think about regulation of energy and of climate pollution outside of uh, you know congressional action, right? So if we have no congressional action, then these types of things work through agencies, then work their way through the courts, and a new makeup of a court changes potentially the outcome of a lot of these uh, cases. All right, folks, I think that wraps up this part of the conversation. Let's give our listeners a free electron. Jigger, what is your free electron this week? Well, I'm going to do a little log rolling. Um, So like this week, we announced a $200 million partnership with uh, BYD, which is the largest electric vehicle manufacturer in the world. And um, to support electric buses in the U.S. And so we're pretty excited about, um, you know, uh, entering into a new sector. Well, fancy that. Julia Piper has a story featured on our website right now about this um, $200 million leasing program. So how does it take out the complexity of electric buses? Well, you know, the thing is, is that um, there's just a lot of nuances around the leasing business, which I honestly didn't know about until we looked at the deal. Like, for instance, the vast majority of banks who do leasing of vehicles make no money during the lease period. They bet that they can get a better price uh, for the used car or the used bus or the used forklift. Um, But the reason why none of those guys want to do that for electric buses is they just don't know what the residual value is going to be, right? So until they have a Kelly Blue Book value for that vehicle, they're just not prepared to lean in. And so that's why there's an opportunity for us to lean in and do this before that. And, you know, we're obviously more comfortable with what the value of Second Life batteries will be because we know what, you know, they might be worth in the grid later and all that stuff. But it's just um, so there's just this misunderstanding. My sense is that we'll have a certain period of time where we'll be able to do this. And then hopefully the goal is that all these traditional leasing companies jump in and fund electric buses um, once they get comfortable with it. I've got an investment idea for you. So I'm coming up with this plan for a drone-based, blockchain-enabled, second-life battery-swapping service for electric buses, and my new CEO is Shia Gassi. What do you think? You want in? Wait, only if it includes AI. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We'll get AI and machine learning in there somehow. Robots. (laughs) Catherine, what's uh, what's your free electron? 
Yeah. So mine is about fracking. There were two things that I read and listened to this week that I thought were really good. One is, and I think everybody can get this for free, which is on eenews.net. And it's an article, a decade of fracking research. What have we learned? And they go through water contamination, air quality, human health, and climate. And what is the research and what are the data show on fracking? And then kind of pairing with that is uh, Chris Hayes has of MSNBC has a new podcast called Why Is This Happening? And he did a special show on natural gas fracking with Eliza Griswold, who just wrote a book called Amity and Prosperity, where she spent seven years in Western Pennsylvania in what's now Trump country, of course, really learning about what fracking has done to the folks in that part of the country. And um, it's fascinating. It is an amazing podcast and kind of paired with this research just gives you a little more complete picture of not just what fracking has done, but what those communities go through and and that it's much more nuanced than we give them credit for. Uh, So that was something I learned a lot from. That sounds cool. What's the name of the book again? Amity and Prosperity by Eliza Griswold. And those are ironically the names of the towns in Western Pennsylvania in which the story takes place. Our listeners have a lot of reading to do. By the way, I got a lot of hate mail from our natural gas uh, episode. People thought I was too pro-natural gas and didn't highlight enough of the risks on um, fracking and other things. I just want to let people know that I absolutely believe there are risks to fracking. I support the ban in New York. And I do believe that natural gas is not a bridge to anywhere. So I, uh, I just do think that natural gas is like this huge thing that is changing world politics. So um, speaking of environmental problems, I have another thought exercise about how to approach you know, public officials who are not doing enough about them who are ignoring them. And we have, of course, in America been dealing with people at restaurants confronting, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press secretary, confronting um, other Trump administration officials, including Scott Pruitt as well. And I was reading a story actually right before we got on about someone who had called out Scott Pruitt at dinner and filmed it. And there's this wave of people who are you know, trying to make it socially unacceptable to basically agree with or uphold the ideals of the Trump administration. And it does open up all these weird, sticky issues about what civility means and when you should stand up for things. And I I wonder um, what you both think about this when we consider the urgency of climate change and the fact that we in America are still dealing dealing with a lot of climate skeptics and climate deniers in public policy. How should we treat this? Is this something that works, right? If you call people out publicly and make them uncomfortable in public places. Any thoughts? Uh, So I think there are a couple ways to do this. One is by doing public demonstrations, marches and things, which is peaceful demonstration. And that is in the Constitution. And I think we need to continue to do that where we believe about certain issues. I think that's perfectly acceptable no matter what time side you're on. You know, I don't have any issue with people uh, very civilly approaching people who are, I mean, Scott Pruitt, this was a lot of it was about the fact that he was spending taxpayer dollar on his own 
self and his own interest and enriching himself. And I think that having somebody say, you know, you're doing this and this is not a good thing is not, is not bad. I mean, they are supposed to be protecting us and leading us and they're not doing it. So I didn't have any problem with it. I'm sure I'll get pushed back. Yeah, I'm all for civility, but I think that, look, what's supposed to happen when you actually, you know, have human rights violations at our border is all the cabinet members are supposed to resign or they're supposed to say, at least publicly, that I am not okay with us creating new internment camps. But, you know, when that doesn't happen, I don't think civility is the first thing I'm thinking about. Like, it's just, it's it's crazy to me how people... Like, just say, well, you know, this is beyond the pale. Look, I completely agree that where this should happen is at the ballot box. And whether you vote Republican or vote Democrat, we should all try to avoid voting crazy. So I think that's good. But like, I just think that when you look at these people and the amount of corruption, it's not just Scott Pruitt. Ryan Zinke is like completely corrupt. And when you just think about what's happening, like, it's it it's unacceptable. I mean, Scott Pruitt made his his underlings pay for stuff and not reimburse them. Who does that to a 20-year-old? <laughs> yeah. It is it is so deep into the absurd. It's really hard to wrap your head around the litany of scandals and weird abuses coming from Scott Pruitt's office. Um but I think, you know, in the in the moment, uncivility feels uncomfortable, of course, right? And and people tend to stray away from it and criticize it when it happens. But when you look back on history, the most um, important pieces of change came from uncivility or people willing to step up and be uncomfortable in the moment. And so I'm generally okay with it. Well, one thing we pride ourselves on this show is civility. There's a lot of wacky stuff happening in the world, but we're laser focused on talking about this energy transition and we do our best to debate and discuss the complexity of that transition so i hope if you enjoy that the way we structure conversation uh that you'll go to apple podcasts and rate and review it or um give us a rating on stitcher or anywhere else anywhere else you get your podcasts we are also um going to be on google podcast soon i mentioned google podcast app coming out recently and Google itself has had a a specific problem with pulling in certain feeds. So the Energy Gang, for some reason, has not been getting updated, but we have been working with Google directly to get that feed updated, and they should be rolling out a a very wide fix because it sounds like it's been impacting a bunch of podcasts. You know, tweet out this show. Send us your thoughts about, uh, you know, maybe your experience with Better Place or your thoughts on... Uh, Brett Kavanaugh in the future of the Supreme Court or our last part of the discussion. What do you think about civility? Uh, But I hope that you are taking this podcast with you, whether you're on a road trip, whether you're sitting outside in the sun, going to the beach, take us with you. And we will, of course, catch you next week with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. 